there are various sites throughout the Santa Monica Mountains where we are recapturing individuals that were marked 20 years ago. They're that old? Yes, this is an extremely long-lived species. Newts, they take a long time to sexually mature. We think about three to five years. And we know from those individuals that have been marked and recaptured, they're coming back to the exact same place. Hello, and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who's ever promised their hiking buddy that they just wanted to see what was around one more bend in the creek. Really, I mean it this time, just one more. There might be frogs over there. I'm Michelle Fulner, and today we're talking about what I think are some of the cutest and most interesting animals alive, because today we're talking amphibians with Gary Butcherelli, whose voice you just heard. We cover so much ground in this episode, including endangered frogs, regrowing digits, deadly neurotoxins, invasive animals, mating balls, why my hiking boots are currently in the freezer, indicator species, and what we can all do to help these beautiful, sensitive creatures thrive. Before we get to that, I want to mention that this is episode 10 out of 12 for season two. So just two episodes left in this season after this one. The next episode, episode 11, is going to be on growing your very own native plants from seed with brilliant restoration ecologist Julia Michaels. And episode 12 will be about urban ecology and the often unexpected wildlife in urban areas. That one will be with Miguel Ordignana, the scientist who first discovered the mountain lion P-22 living in Griffith Park in the middle of Los Angeles. Make sure you're following Golden State Naturalist wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss those episodes. On Apple Podcasts, you can do that by hitting the little plus sign in the top right-hand corner of the screen, and in some apps, you can tap the word follow or subscribe to make sure you stay up to date. Then, after those next two episodes are out, I'm going to be taking some time to focus on recording interviews for season three. Many of those are already planned, including my first ever interviews revolving around coastal topics, and my first ever episode about birds, and sometimes maybe even coastal birds. There will also be plenty of fantastic inland and mountainous episodes coming up in season three. If you want to be the first to know about the topics for those upcoming interviews and get the chance to have your questions asked to the naturalists, you can become a patron for just $4 a month. That $4 goes so incredibly far in supporting an independent podcaster. It helps me do things like gather interviews from all around the state and pay for audio equipment and necessary software for making the show. And if you've ever thought about becoming a patron before, but maybe just weren't quite ready yet, this is a really great time to do it because I'm getting ready for a whole bunch of interviews this spring and you'll get to find out the topics, including one that I think might be my most requested topic of all time. And you'll get to send me your questions to ask during all of those upcoming interviews. You can find me on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner. That's Michelle with two L's and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. You can also help the show by leaving a rating or review wherever you listen. Seriously, reading reviews makes me so happy. So thank you to everyone who's already left one. And if you haven't and you want to make my whole day, I would so appreciate even a short message about what you like about the show. Or if you've already left a review, just sharing your favorite episode with a friend, family member, or anyone with a long commute is an amazing way to help the show. 
If you want to see my outdoorsy adventures or sometimes photos or videos that go along with the episodes, you can follow me at Golden State Naturalist on both Instagram and TikTok. There's also a Golden State Naturalist Facebook page, or you can check out my website at www.goldenstatenaturalist.com. And if you go to the store tab, that's where you can also find the new Golden State Naturalist merch. Okay, that was a lot. So thanks for sticking through all of that. Now let's get to the episode. Gary Bucciarelli earned his PhD from UCLA in 2015 with a focus on poisonous amphibians and did his postdoc with the National Park Service building a genomics-informed conservation management plan for Los Angeles amphibians. Gary recently became the director of the Lassen Field Station for UC Davis Natural Reserves. And before that, he was an adjunct professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at UCLA. So without further ado, let's hear from Gary Bucciarelli on Golden State Naturalist. There's a newt right there. Oh, there it is. Hi, yeah. buddy. He's eating something. What he's got have? something in his mouth. It probably is a tadpole, but he just it swallowed it. He, oh, he's got a little bit in his mouth still. Got a little tail sticking out or something. Yeah. I met up with Gary at Leo Carrillo State Beach in Malibu. And by met up with him, I mean I wandered around the parking lot looking for him until he mercifully called me to tell me where he was, and then I still got lost trying to find the location he described. But once I did, I hopped into his truck so he could drive us up into the Santa Monica Mountains. He knew the roads well after having spent a lot of time researching amphibians in the area and pulled over near a little stone bridge, which we walked beneath to look at the abundant California newts and tree frogs in and around the stream. This was late August of last year, so the drought had brought the water level down to just a couple of inches deep in the place where we stood. Amazingly, though, we saw amphibians in different parts of their life cycle just about everywhere we looked. So there are some big tadpoles in here. These are the tadpoles of the specialist breeder, the Hylocadaverina. So that one's the California tree frog. And they're about, they range in size a lot, right? Yep. But like the smaller ones are maybe an inch long, the longer ones inch and a half. Yeah. You probably think in centimeters because you're a real yeah. scientist. <laughs> I do both. <laughs> okay. And they're sort of this speckly sort of yeah. uh, grayish, grayish, brownish sort of a color. Yeah, hence the cadaverina name. Oh. So the cadaverina, because they look like cadavers when they're adult, wow. because they're almost like grayish white to blend into the rocks, the natural oh, rocks. So okay. yeah. that's where they go. And these are meant to kind of match the substrate, right? Mm -hmm. So they have that speckled that kind of matches the mm -hmm. materials on the bed. And then they're, yeah, about the size of your thumb, kind of, they're a little smaller than that. And most of them here have back legs at this point in the development. So these are ready to metamorphose rather soon. The pool, you can see, this is not like super deep habitat. Mm -hmm. The water's about, mm, 20 centimeters in wetted width, I would say, 30 centimeters. And I could easily hop across it. You could easily yeah. hop across it, and it wouldn't even pass your ankle if you right. were to step in it. And they, here they are, they're making it. There's That's... a newt in there eating. Uh -huh. And there, I've counted so far at least seven tadpoles. So mm -hmm. 
they're kind of all doing quite well in here. These are the, the species lays single eggs. Whoa. Which is kind of crazy. These little tadpoles were almost ready to head to dry land when we saw them. Gary said all that was left was for their tails to be absorbed and lungs to finish developing. And those low water levels I mentioned earlier were actually having an impact on the speed of this process. They also are probably developing pretty quickly as a result of the shallowness because their developmental rate is temperature dependent. So oh. the warmer this water is, which it's pretty warm for stream oh, yeah. water. Yeah. And so it's shallow. So and it's also an open canopy here. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of energy coming into it. And as a result, they're probably developing a little faster. Wow, are there any other factors that determine how fast they develop? The rate at which the water dries down, that's also a factor. So amphibians can sense that the water level is dropping and then they will increase the rate for metamorphosis. So I am not exaggerating when I say I had been wondering about this phenomenon of frogs developing at different rates under different conditions for almost 30 years. In retrospect, I could definitely have Googled this, but look, we all make choices and my choice was not to Google it, but to grow up, major in something completely unrelated to science, decide 10 years into my career that I wanted to do something different, start a podcast, drive all the way across the state and ask a herpetologist in person. Anyway, I was so excited when Gary mentioned this because when I was a kid, I used to catch these massive tadpoles that now I'm thinking must have been invasive bullfrog tadpoles. And one time my brother and I put a ton of them into a five gallon bucket full of water from the expansive puddle in the cow pasture where we had found them. I think maybe we were trying to rescue them because we knew the puddle was going to dry up soon. But after we put them in the bucket, I remember waiting and waiting and waiting as patiently as my seven-year-old self could wait. And these things just would not turn into frogs. I don't know how they survived in this horrible environment we'd created for them, but I don't remember any of them dying. They just lived in this state of suspended animation as tadpoles long after the puddle in the cow pasture had disappeared. And some of the details of this story are fuzzy in my memory, but eventually my brother and I somehow procured an old fish tank and we filled it partway up with water and also included some kind of dry land. I think it might have been pebbles and sticks, maybe packed with mud. I don't know, but as soon as we provided that dry land, poof, the tadpoles started turning into frogs. I was in awe. And I've thought for decades that the dry land must have been what made the difference. But I also wondered if we just happened to move them at the same time as they would have started metamorphosing anyway. Exactly. So that wasn't just coincidence that when we put them there, that's right. when they turned into They're frogs. in the bucket. There are no predators. Uh -huh. There's no pressure. So predators can also apply a pressure for them to hurry mm -hmm. up and get out of the water mm -hmm. if they sense that there are predators in there. So your habitat you had created in the bucket, the water was probably always about the same temperature mm -hmm. and probably pretty cool and it wasn't drying down mm -hmm. and so they didn't really have any reason to get out of there too quick we'll just chill in here just this chill is fine. yeah how are we going to get out of here anyway right. it's just like these tall walls yeah yes exactly <laughs> okay but how do we go about looking for amphibians in a stream and not in a bucket where they have indefinitely been imprisoned well one of the first things you have to do is just stop you might want to listen first mm. so 
The frog that we're looking at right now is unique because it's diurnal. Mm -hmm. So it will call during the day and they're territorial too. Mm -hmm. The males are territorial. So they will call to females during the day. And if they sense someone, including a human, in their territory, they might start calling mm -hmm. and advertising that, hey, I'm here, sort of vocalization. It's a single note. It's kind of like this high-pitched chirp. And if you imitate it, they will actually call back to you wow. to say, yeah, they're territorial, so you have to listen, okay. right? That's the first thing is coming into the stream and listening and do you hear any frogs calling? The second thing would be just looking at the site. So mm -hmm. we're at a stream, uh, this is what we would call a run of water. So it's like just a straight shot of water. There's no pool right now. And that's often kind of like the thorough way for aquatic amphibians. Mm. They will kind of maybe move upstream. So like our newt, you can see the newt is making its way upstream. Mm -hmm. So they have chemotaxis, like they can smell things in the water oh. and they're working their way up to where that source of the cue is. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's females and sometimes that's food. In this case, it looks like it was food. So especially in the spring, like when most amphibians are mating, you'd want to be just looking and seeing what's happening in the water. And you got to kind of look beyond the glare too, and you got to stop and look for movement in the water. So as we're standing here, there's so much movement happening. Like mm -hmm. there are so many tadpoles eating algae, moving around, flicking their tails. And you know, if you were just walking by quickly, you wouldn't see that. Mm -hmm. The other thing is you would want to look for deep habitat, like pool habitat. Mm. So lots to see. You just have to know what to look for, right? And that's the beauty of it. You, you kind of go and you take a closer inspection. Mm. And then you start to see more the longer you look too. Your eyes right. kind of adjust. Yeah, because we're not used to looking at the scale, right? Mm -hmm. uh, also, a lot of things are camouflaged, so predators don't see them right mm -hmm. and you kind of just have to take a step back and slow down and actually observe i really just want to emphasize here that you might not notice the organisms around you right away as soon as you arrive in a place that you think will be good habitat for amphibians being still and staying in one place for a few minutes maybe with your nature journal which Remember from the nature journaling episode is not about art skills or making a pretty picture, but this stillness and slowness we can cultivate seems to magically make the world open up in front of you. The other thing Gary mentioned is knowing what to look for. And it's great if you can learn a little bit about the types of amphibians in your area before you go out. So you'll know what to look for and what time of day you can expect to see it. Like those diurnal California tree frogs, Hylocadaverina. You can see them sunning themselves right in the middle of the day, which is not what you normally expect to see from amphibians. And you might not ever look for that if you'd never heard of those behaviors before. So if you're in California, there's a great website called California Herps that will tell you the distribution of reptiles and amphibians all across the state. I don't know too many resources outside of California, but I just tried Googling Seattle amphibians and found a page on the official kingcounty.gov website that's got a list of all the reptiles and amphibians in the county. 
and it even indicates which ones are native and which are introduced. It doesn't give information about each species, but just knowing the names gives you something to use for further searches. And once you know a little about your local amphibians, you're much more likely to start spotting them. So try that out in your area and tell me if you find anything interesting. At this point, Gary noticed something in the water that was not an amphibian, but that does sometimes eat them. The one we saw was on the prowl for tadpoles while we watched. I don't think I see it. Is it that leaf-looking thing? Yeah, it's the leaf-looking <gasps> thing. That's a bug? Yeah, that's a bug. And this was not some tiny, adorable water beetle. It was really big, about the size of a silver dollar. So this is a bug that's commonly called a toe biter. Uh -huh. And they're in the true bug order, the hemipterans, and they have this sit and wait ambush kind of behavior. We might see it strike. We watched it for a minute or two and... Oh, oh, oh he tried! He tried. I yeah, he did try. He did try. But he's patient. He's just gonna wait he's for the gonna next one. He's gonna wait for the next one. Yeah, exactly. Definitely search for toe biter with eggs because you'll see very cool pictures of the males of these giant water bugs with eggs stuck on their backs. The males of the species are actually the ones to carry the eggs. They're super interesting creatures. And Gary thinks that seeing them is a good sign of the health of a waterway. Even though they're not as sensitive as some species of aquatic invertebrates, like mayflies, stoneflies, and caddisflies, that are usually used as indicator species. Okay, this next part is kind of gross, but also really interesting. They strike and then they have these feeding mouth parts that kind of like suck out the food Ooh. that they get from the prey. I've seen them take out uh, newt larvae and then also metamorphs that were about to get out of the water. They have eaten them. Yeah. That's not a good way to go either. It's not, it's not going to be painless, no. I know that doesn't sound fantastic, but it just means that they're present and they're doing their part in the ecosystem. But let's talk more about those newts. California newts are one of my favorite animals, and part of the reason why I admire them so much is because they possess a trait that I am sorely lacking, a sense of direction. They always come back to the same place. Mm -hmm. Always. A very famous herpetologist named David Wake said they might as well be trees. Wow. Because <laughs> they are essentially at the same place I mean, every heard, year. Yeah. I've heard they have an insane sense of direction. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. if you just plop one down a couple miles from here, it'll just know where to go, right? And it will home back to where you took it from, which makes conservation really hard for newts specifically. Like, mm. you got to get egg masses. You got to hope that the conditions are right there for those larvae to make it. And then you got to hope that there's enough of a food source for them to mm. make it when they metamorphose. And then they take three to five years to sexually mature. Mm. So where do they go during that time? So amphibians are really hard from a conservation perspective because you not only have to make sure that the habitat in the water is right, but upland too. We call it upland habitat because most of them will leave the stream area and go upland onto the banks or into the hills to estivate. So estivate is a term like mammals hibernate, amphibians estivate, amphibians and reptiles estivate. And it's basically, they kind of just shut down, slow mm -hmm. down their metabolism. For amphibians, generally speaking, we know nothing about that process. Really? We don't know how far they go. All three of these species um, that we're looking at today, we don't know where they go. Wow. Presumably, you know, not too far. Mm -hmm. And they're certainly not moving, at least the two specialist species we've been talking about, the Hylocadaverina and California newt, Tarika terosa. They are not 
going, you know, to other sites. The genetic data don't support that. Wow. Yeah. But you can't just like slap a collar on one of these guys and see where it goes. It's no. not really an option. It's not big enough. And I mean, there's probably high mortality rate, right? Uh, especially in the like larval stages. Mm -hmm. And then I sh should share with you that a colleague of mine started putting into the adult newts little pit tags 20 some years ago in the 90s. Uh, Lee Katz started this project and he's at Pepperdine University. And there are various sites throughout the Santa Monica Mountains where we are recapturing individuals that were marked 20 years ago. They're that old? Yes, this is an extremely long-lived species. Newts, they take a long time to sexually mature. We think about three to five years. And we know from those individuals that have been marked and recaptured, they're coming back to the exact same place. Wow. And females are not coming every year. They might come every three years. Really? Yep. And that they are long-lived and that they're not going in between sites. So we always have a scanner when we go do field work to survey or collect data on the amphibians. And never have we ever found a newt that was tagged in one site at an adjacent one. Wow. And those can be separated by less than, you know, a kilometer. Wow. Yeah. They are going home. They are going They're home. They're not going next door. <laughs> they don't want to leave their hood. No. Do you know how they do that? Is that known? Like how they figure out where to go? No. <laughs> <laughs> Gary says that a Stanford biologist named Victor Twitty led a group of researchers to study this homing behavior using some crude experiments in the 1960s. One of those experiments involved taking newts and moving them kilometers away from where they were found, which seems like a very cruel thing to do to such tender and tiny creatures, and I'm still kind of mad about it 60 years later. Anyways, these newts would find their way home miraculously within the same breeding season. And then, of course, the researchers wanted to figure out how the newts were finding their way. The other thing that they did, which was an unfortunate experiment that I don't think would ever be approved today, at least not given what we know now, they actually were trying to figure out, like, are they homing through sight or smell? Oh, no. And I so, see where this is going. yeah, unfortunately, it was a failed experiment, but what they were trying to do was see if it was smell first. And so they cauterized the olfaction, oh. the olfactory nerves and the olfactory tissue in adult newts and then translocated them elsewhere and wanted to see if they came back. And they had marked the newts in a unique way. And what happened was they came back, but the tissue that they cauterized, newts have an amazing regenerative ability. So all of the tissue had regenerated. Good for them. Right. Screw those guys. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Awesome. So it was an inconclusive yeah, experiment, sure. flawed from the get-go uh -huh. because newts can regenerate wow. eyes. <gasps> they can regenerate tails, limbs. They can refuse vertebra. They are incredible. The, like medical doctor studying these guys. Yeah, actually, <laughs> so the, cool. the sister taxon, so the sister group of newts to this Tarika genus is Nodophthalmus, which is the eastern spotted newt group, mm -hmm. and they're east of the Rockies. Okay. And they've been a huge focus, um, people looking at gene expression and trying to understand how they do this amazing regenerative capacity. I mean, mm -hmm. it. I don't know how far they've gotten with that, Wow! but there's been a lot of research on it. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Also like 
sad for whatever newts have to be part of those experiments. Yes. Yeah. But I think hopefully they're doing it all just by looking at, you know, genomic information. That would be good. Yeah, we DNA. Can do, we can do yeah. less invasive yeah. stuff Less now. invasive yeah. stuff. That's good. So the ones they're experimenting on call areas east of the Rockies' home. But where in California can you find newts? And actually any kind of amphibian? The answer is almost anywhere. I found a map of amphibian richness from the Atlas of Biodiversity of California. And grain of salt, this map is from 2002. Unfortunately, I couldn't find an updated version, but this one is still listed on Fish and Wildlife's website, so I'm hoping it still holds more or less true. So the map shows the number of native amphibian species across the whole state, and there are only a few small pockets on the eastern side of the Sierra Nevada mountains with zero native species. But the rest of the state has native amphibians, with more species along the coast and throughout the coastal mountains. And the greatest diversity is on the north coast. So if you live in, like, Sonoma, Mendocino, Humboldt, or Del Norte counties, you can expect to have a lot of variety in your amphibian neighbors. There are a couple of other pockets farther south with a lot of diversity too, like the Santa Cruz Mountains and the San Bernardino Mountains. But what should you do when you actually find an amphibian? And then if somebody is visiting a yeah. site like this, I'm yeah. just curious about what is appropriate with interacting mm. with them. So is yeah. it ever okay to handle them if you put them back or is it just like don't touch? I would recommend don't touch. And mm. the reason being is there's a lot of research emerging that our contact with their skin affects their microbiome. Mm. Oh no! So this is a whole emerging field of research, mm. the microbiome. And for humans, it's a whole discourse about how it affects our health. So. Mm. You know, do people experience maladies or diseases because our microbiome is actually affected, mm -hmm. right? So Crohn's disease or celiac's disease being an example. So there's a lot of research emerging about how the microbiome that's like what bacteria you actually have living in you, mm -hmm. the good bacteria, right. right, that benefit you. Why we're, you know, worried about probiotics, right? Uh -huh. Why do people tell you to take probiotics to increase your bacterial flora in your microbiome? Right. Amphibians have a microbiome too. Their skin is actually very species rich with bacterial community, a mm -hmm. microbiome that appears to have a very strong role in their health. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to handle them, you know, you should have gloves on okay. and you cannot wear latex gloves. Oh. The latex harms their skin, so it needs to be nitrile. So nitrile are not readily available. People don't typically have yeah. them. So newsflash people like probably just leave them alone. Yeah, get a good right? camera. Get a great camera, <laughs> observe. <laughs> yeah. Get a observe. macro lens or like a waterproof yeah. camera, stick it in the water, yeah. don't bump yeah. them. Right, and so the microbiome can be affected by the handling and mm. so we tend to be very sensitive to that and not disturb them if we're not going to collect data on them. So we do a big stream survey, uh -huh. we wear the nitrile gloves and handle them and weigh them and measure them and then sample them for DNA and swab them and then put them right back. Cool, That's Yeah, awesome. the other thing people should be not doing is picking them up, taking them home, mm -hmm. keeping them as a pet, and yeah. then introducing them somewhere else oh, later, yeah. or reintroducing them in general, because yeah. they, the microbiome, again, is very sensitive, and they can acquire diseases in captivity mm -hmm. that then you reintroduce. Mm -hmm. So just 
Just leave let them, them be. Just leave yeah. them alone. And um, who knows how much longer, you know, newts are even going to be in Southern California. Mm. So admire them while you can. Yeah. yeah. Gary also said to use caution when walking in streams because for a tiny animal like a newt or a frog, each footfall can be a major disturbance. So he advises being aware in those situations. But there's an invisible layer to all of this too. So we would never think like, oh, maybe my shoes have something on it that mm. shouldn't be introduced into right. this stream. Mm -hmm. And here's what happens, and this is a really crucial point to make, which is there are diseases that amphibians have dealt with, like they had their own like COVID right. that they dealt with. Mm -hmm. It's a fungal pathogen that's globally abundant. It's called chytrid is the disease that it causes, chytridiomycosis. It's caused by a fungal pathogen and its spores live in the water mm. and it can live on dry land too. Mm -hmm. And if you're going between streams, like if you're hiking and you're like, oh, I was in this stream yesterday mm -hmm. and you have the same shoes on, you could be transferring a fungal pathogen to a site that maybe doesn't have it. So whether you're in one general area and visiting different streams or wearing the same shoes to different locations that are farther from each other, like across the state, your shoes can carry this fungal pathogen. But that's not the only thing they can carry. The other thing is invasive species. And they hitchhike on shoes or wow. pants or socks. We think of them as being big enough to be visible, but there's tiny, tiny invasive species yeah. too. Like New Zealand mud snails. Um, New Zealand mud snails is a globally invasive species. The larvae are microscopic and you can have hundreds on your shoes. Oh, no. And going into a stream means you introduce them there. Uh -huh. Crayfish, there can be larvae as well. We've dealt with invasive crayfish here for decades and the larvae can hitchhike on shoes too. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, you can be spreading these invasive species that sometimes, you know, totally wipe out an entire ecosystem. Wow. Amphibians lost. And certainly with chytrid or other diseases, they can have really strong consequences to the ecosystem as well. So what do you advise when people are coming to an area for, is there a way to like clean your shoes in yeah. advance? Yeah, great prompt because people should be kind of thinking about this and then what they can do to mitigate that, mm -hmm. that risk. And one thing is just washing your shoes in a washing machine mm. with like some bleach solution or detergent on a hot cycle. If you can't do that, like you don't wanna wash your shoes in the washing machine, you can freeze them for oh. 48 hours. Cool. That will work. And then if you're going in between sites, say in a day, just carry like a, a bucket, like a you know 10 gallon bucket or something like that with a lid and carry some water in it. You can even get stream water if you don't want to carry the water and have a little bit of bleach with you mm -hmm. so that you can dilute that bleach to like a 20% solution, 10% mm -hmm. solution, and just dip your shoes in that okay. and just leave them in there for a few minutes and that will kill the fungal spores, that will kill the invasive species, mm -hmm. anything like that that could harm the ecosystem. Okay, yeah. Yeah, cool. pretty easy. Yeah. I think that's the easiest thing to do, honestly. Yeah. Or just have two pairs of shoes. Yeah, sure. Right? You know, put them both in the freezer before you're going to go. That's right. <laughs> if you're a few Freeze days. before you go. <laughs> and then and then just swap them out. Yeah, exactly. That's that makes sense. I realize that these measures can add an extra step and give you one more thing to think about before going out on a hike. But I'm thinking I can make this part of my post hike routine to just stick my boots in the freezer or through the wash with some bleach. 
That way it's all taken care of and they're ready to go for the next time. And really, we share this planet with lots of beautiful and odd and delightful creatures who deserve that extra little bit of consideration. It's totally worth that little bit of extra time. Okay, in just a moment, we're going to talk more about what makes an amphibian an amphibian, the toxicity of California newts, indicator species, and so much more. Stick around for that. We'll be back after a short break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. Let's talk about amphibians some more. After we had spent some time looking around at all the amphibians around us, we followed the stream for a little while and found some rocks to sit down on for a full conversation. So here's that full interview with Gary Butcherelli. Okay, so what is an amphibian for somebody who might not know? Yeah, so what is an amphibian? This is a question I get a lot because people show me pictures of lizards. Right. And they're like, oh, I saw this salamander. And I'm like, no, no, not, not there. Uh, so let's revisit amphibians. So ampha meaning both, bios meaning life is the Latin that amphibian comes from. So amphibians have two lives, one in the water, one on land. They're not separate though. It's a part of their life cycle. They use the water for reproduction generally. There are some that don't, but amphibians in general, the life history strategy is the adults come to the streams or water of some sort, ponds, lakes. They reproduce, they lay eggs. The eggs have the aquatic stage of their life where the tadpoles or the larvae hatch out. Tadpoles are typically for frogs, right? Mm -hmm. Larvae would be salamanders or newts. And they hatch out, they go through this developmental process where they have external gills and the external gills get absorbed and then they develop lungs during that process and then they go onto land. And that's the second part of it, right? Like they are adults on land and they come back to these aquatic habitats to reproduce. So when they come back, they've lost their ability to breathe underwater because they've absorbed the gills or? That's right. So okay. they can breathe underwater. Their skin exchanges oxygen oh. through the water, but they still have to come up for air. Oh, Whereas the larvae or tadpoles are completely dependent on the oxygen levels in the water. Mm -hmm. They have the external bushy gills that you see on the back of their heads. And if oxygen levels in the water are crappy, they're not breathing so well. Mm -hmm. So what Gary said about amphibians being able to exchange oxygen through their skin in the water is also why they need to stay moist even when they're not in the water. Amphibians have simple lungs and also rely on the oxygen they take in through their skin. 
In fact, some amphibians don't even have lungs. The California slender salamander, which is narrower than some shoelaces I've seen and very cute, is one example of this. These lungless salamanders breathe through their skin and through thin membranes inside of the mouth and throat. And if you're still thinking about what Gary said about salamanders with external gills, you might be visualizing an axolotl. Most salamanders lose those external gills as they mature into adults, but axolotls, which are a kind of salamander native only to Mexico City, retain their gills as adults. They're gorgeous. And they also almost always look like they're smiling, so you may want to set a picture of an axolotl as your lock screen if you're ever feeling sad. I should also note that a lot of people are like, what's the difference between a newt and a salamander? Mm -hmm. Or what's the difference between a toad and a frog? Mm -hmm. A newt is a type of salamander, oh. just like a toad is a type of frog. Okay. It's so easy now, right? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, right. <laughs> I was wondering that. Yeah, the third group of amphibians that we haven't talked about are the Sicilians, and they're super strange, and people will also send me pictures of Sicilians and say, I found this snake, and I'm oh. like, nope, it's actually a legless amphibian. So yeah, weird. very strange group, but super fascinating. And amphibians, they have this kind of multi-phase life cycle, right? Where it's like water for the youngest part of their lives. And then they do this metamorphosis. And I'm just speaking generally here because there are always exceptions. There are amphibians that have live birth. Some salamanders that do that as an example. But there are also some amphibians, like I talked about the red spotted newt, that have unique life stages in between metamorphosis and adult. And it's a stage called an EFT, E-F-T, mm. where the juveniles have a distinct color and pattern and size that is different entirely from the larval stage in the water and the adult stage. Wow. And so they'll be in this EFT stage as a sexually immature animal mm -hmm. until they become an adult. Wow, and how yeah. many species have that? Not many. Okay. So this is just the one I'm specifically talking about is the eastern spotted newt, okay. which is the sister species to the newts that we have here in California and up mm. the Pacific coast. The sister species is the group of newts that are east of the Rockies, okay. which is the genus Nodophthalmus. How much variety of amphibians do we have here in California? We have a lot of variety, actually. You know, California is a biodiversity hotspot, and part of that is we have incredible amounts of amphibian biodiversity. Fish and Wildlife says there are 51 native amphibian species here in California, but a website called The Biologist Handbook says there are 67 native amphibian species. My inclination would be to go with Fish and Wildlife, but that information comes from that same book from 2002, and I'm wondering if more species have been described since then, or maybe just the species have been broken down differently? I don't know, but either way, there are a lot. But what's crazy is we have, as an example, arboreal salamanders, right? And a paper just came out that they actually use their limbs to help them break, like when they jump out of trees. What? Yeah, they're found in the Do Sierra they foothills. They glide, essentially, yeah. Whoa, so this would be a so cool, cool thing to look up, yeah. I did look this up, and arboreal salamanders have big, dark, protuberant eyes and graceful bodies flecked with gold. 
but they also have terrifying sharp little teeth that look like shards of glass, which I found very surprising when I stumbled upon a photo of them. Thankfully, these salamanders are teeny tiny. I saw another photo of one trying to bite someone's finger and it couldn't quite get its little mouth open wide enough to do it. But in the extremely unlikely event that one does manage to bite you and break the skin, just make sure to wash your teeny tiny wound so it doesn't get infected. Okay, but I got sidetracked by those teeth because I didn't know amphibians could have teeth, but also these salamanders glide. They're like the flying squirrels of amphibians, but they don't have that webbing that flying squirrels have, so I think maybe they're using magic. Or maybe they're just really light, but I think Occam's razor points to magic. If you want to check them out, the San Francisco Chronicle has an article about them, complete with videos of these little guys in the world's tiniest wind tunnel just maneuvering through the air. They're adorable, they're fierce, they live high up in the branches of coast redwoods and other trees, like in that inland population that Gary pointed out, and they fling themselves out of trees to move around. It's a whole aesthetic. So we have these arboreal salamanders. We have Encetina, which is a fascinating group of salamanders that form what's called a ring species. So this is an example I always use in my evolution course to think about evolution as a process mm -hmm. because what the ring species show you in these salamanders, Encetina is the genus. They wrap basically around what used to be the land sea that is now the Central Valley mm -hmm. of California. And as they wrap around, the populations that are adjacent to one another, they're actually subspecies. So the subspecies that are adjacent to one another interbreed and they can form hybrids. Whoa. But as you go around the ring, it comes back together, right? Mm -hmm. So the ring loops all the way up above the Central Valley, down into the Sierra foothills, mm -hmm. down into like San Diego County, up into the southern part of the Bay Area. And when they actually come back together at the site where they come back together, they cannot interbreed. What? Right. So what has happened is the whole process of radiating around the Central Valley, by the time they reconnect, which is actually sort of like at the southwest part of the Central Valley, Southern California-ish area, they cannot interbreed any longer because they've grown so genetically different from one another. So it's like this can't. insane game of telephone almost. Kind of, yeah. It goes in this one direction. Yeah. That is crazy. Yeah, so anything that's adjacent to one another, those can form mm -hmm. hybrids if they're very distantly separated through evolutionary time, they've genetically differentiated so much that they can't interbreed now. Mm -hmm. This is why we think about it as a process showing that evolution is something that unfolds over very long time scales. Mm -hmm. It takes time for species to form mm -hmm. because they have to separate. Mm -hmm. So if they're in constant contact, like the adjacent populations, they can still interbreed. They haven't fully differentiated because they haven't been separated, mm -hmm. right? For long enough for them to become full species wow. that don't interbreed. If you go all the way around the, the ring though, that group that started at the start of the ring and that group that has formed at the end of the ring, they've been separated for millions of years. Wow. And as a result, do not form hybrids. They do not interbreed. That is wild. It's wild. That is very cool though, yeah. I love that. So we've got newts, we've got salamanders, we've got frogs, we've got toads. We don't have any Sicilians. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, I was wondering because yeah. I've never discovered one or, no. you know, 
didn't think I did. So we talked about the types of newts that are present here in California. And yeah. I was wondering, are all of them toxic or just certain ones? All of them have this neurotoxin that's called tetrodotoxin. You asked earlier about what is an amphibian. Well, a defining trait of amphibians, the entire group is that they have poison glands. Hmm. What poison it is and how poisonous it is, is sometimes a function of what is in those poison glands, but also the dose too, mm. right? So some amphibians like toads have bufodenaloids in their poison glands that mm. are distasteful, but at a high enough dose, it could be toxic and poisonous to cause death, right? Mm. Newts, the genus Terica and many other newt species have neurotoxin called tetrodotoxin in their poison glands, which is extremely poisonous at very low doses. Mm -hmm. In fact, some newts have enough toxin in their skin we've found to kill dozens of people. Whoa. Yeah, it's an alkaloid. So basic, just real quick chemistry lesson on, on this toxin. Alkaloids don't have proteins in them. So it's something that is not made by like genes because mm. genes only produce proteins. Interesting. So we don't know where they get it. What? No one knows how they get it. It's <laughs> crazy. It's crazy. And there are two potential possible ways that they do this. And the first being that they actually produce it with some biosynthetic pathway in their body. So mm -hmm. there could be genes that produce a system that actually takes some precursors, like something in the food or something in the body and turns it into tetrodotoxin, and then it gets moved around in the body. The other is there could be bacterial symbionts that live in their skin or in their body, and they produce it for them. There are other amphibians, so going back to the former hypothesis, that possible potential pathway with the biosynthesis, de novo production. There are frogs, like poison frogs from Central America, South America, that produce through a biosynthetic pathway mm -hmm. the poisons that they have in their skin, and it's all related to the food that they get. They eat these mites, and they actually convert some molecule that's in the, the food to the toxin. For tetrodotoxin, there is no evidence that a biosynthetic pathway exists, and actually, newts are not unique in possessing tetrodotoxin it's actually in pufferfish. Oh. That's the poison that people typically are worried about dying from, right? Fugu, you eat fugu, you uh -huh. die, right? <laughs> um, pufferfish, adelopid frogs, sea stars. Some sea stars have tetrodotoxin, some boxfish, some xanthid crabs, some worms, some sea slugs. It all appears that many of them have that as a result of the bacteria that they have. Wow. So we were talking about the microbiome, mm -hmm. right? And this is further reason why we need to ensure that we don't disrupt the microbiome. Because mm -hmm. if it is a defensive molecule, it's like a poison that protects them from predators, possibly disrupting that microbiome affects how they can protect themselves, mm -hmm. right? Right, absolutely. Bright colors in nature can often indicate toxicity and be used to warn off predators. This is called aposematism. And newts totally take advantage of this with their bright orange bellies. So they do this strange posture called the unkin reflex, where when they feel threatened, what they will actually do is curl their back and flash their, it's called the vent, their vent, their belly, uh -huh. and they flash it to a predator. 
Some of those predators could be birds. We've mm -hmm. documented that birds can or do attack them. It might be some mammals like skunks. Fish have also been documented to eat them. But perhaps the m most talked about is garter snakes that mm. have hypothetically been strong predators of uh, newts and that they've actually evolved resistance to the toxin because they've experienced selection pressure from the newt's poison to evolve resistance. Wow. Yeah. And the more resistance that they evolve, the more toxic the newt has to get. Is that the idea? That's the idea. As I said, though, we don't know how newts make it. Right. So we don't, a, a prerequisite for evolution is that it has to be a genetic based trait. Uh -huh. So if the toxin isn't being produced by genes, then there's nothing being acted on by the predator's pressure to evolve greater toxicity. In fact, what we've documented is that in many populations, there's a tremendous amount of variation with how much toxin the newts have from something that's non-detectable all the way up to many, many milligrams of toxin in individuals. Whoa. And that you can actually get that to increase if you stress them out. You can cause increase in the toxin concentration rapidly within days. And that it changes through time in populations. And not just because of the individuals that you're sampling because there's so much variation. We've tracked individual toxin concentrations in the wild and seen that they can fluctuate in great ways in between breeding season, within a breeding season. So tremendous variation. And it actually complicates this story about these snakes and newts. Sure. Co-evolving, right? right? The idea that one is causing a change in the other and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So you get the resistance. This is called an arms race, mm -hmm. right? And you've got a snake with some level of resistance and you've got a newt with maybe greater toxin concentrations. And that causes the snakes to evolve greater resistance. Well, that antagonizes the newts to get more toxin, right? right? And that's the arms race, right? You're always increasing and it's always directional, increasing. Mm -hmm. Greater resistance, greater toxin, greater resistance as a response of, of greater toxin. And if you don't have genes making that toxin, how is it responding? And especially if it's bacteria that produce it, how does that work then? Yeah. And so we know that there's probably been selection pressure on the snakes to get greater resistance, right? Presumably that's been a result of the newts getting and having toxin, but we don't know if newts are even responding to selection pressure from these predators, snakes or anything in between, because it seems like it's what we call a plastic trait, mm -hmm. that it's plastic, meaning it can change quickly, mm -hmm. not over thousands of generations. generations. It's changing within a generation in the individual. That is so fascinating. Yeah. I, I really wonder. Yeah. And so like individuals you see in the wild, um, they could be really poisonous that point in time mm -hmm. and they may not be. Individuals can change. I yeah. always thought it was like the, or now I'm questioning everything, but I thought it was like the uh, ground squirrel rattlesnake right. relationship, which right. that's an arms race, right? Or do we yes. know that? Okay. Yeah. And mm -hmm. that makes sense because you're talking about resistance and toxins. Mm -hmm. Snakes venom is like very well studied that it's a 
you know, genetic product, their selection on the protein producing genes mm -hmm. that make the molecules that go into the venom. That's very well understood. Mm -hmm. And then on the squirrel part of it, their resistance to that venom, mm -hmm. right? Like that is, you know, proteins that have to protect them and metabolize those venoms, right? We don't know anything about the toxin, if you want to think about the rattlesnakes as comparable to the newts in the sense that they're producing this poison, right? Yeah. The toxin, no clue where it's coming from. That is we know that bacteria can produce the toxin. And there's been research from a colleague I have at Michigan State University, Heather Eisten, and she has done these experiments where she and her grad student, Patrick Valley, have cultured bacteria mm -hmm. that produce the toxin, and they've identified some of those groups of bacteria that are producing the toxin. And what we're working on now with other collaborators like Lee Katz, he and I have done some experiments with another collaborator and a vet. We've given them antibiotics and exposed the newts to broad-spectrum antibiotics and looked at what has happened with the toxin production uh -huh. or the phenotype as a result of the antibiotics. And largely what we have found, and this is not published yet, which is fine to talk about, mm -hmm. but I should just add that caveat. Yeah. It's in the process of being published. What we've found is that you knock out certain bacteria and it has consequences to the toxin phenotype. Mm. It changes. And in the groups where you don't do that, where they get a placebo, you have a very different response. Arguing that in real time, you can manipulate the toxin phenotype. It's not locked in this arms race. It can change, it's mutable, and that bacteria have some role in that. Wow. Yeah. That is fascinating. Totally. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, there may be some facet of this arms race idea that gets incorporated into that, but it might not just be this two-player sort of situation. The bacteria might be responding to something happening in the newts. Mm -hmm. The newts might have to produce some hormone mm -hmm. that the bacteria need or some resource that the bacteria need to produce the toxin. And then they produce more of it when they're stressed and right. then they become more toxic, right. potentially. Right, and some populations of newts may be able to do that better than others. Interesting. Right? Yeah. And that might be a result of selection pressure from predators. We talked a little bit earlier about indicator species. Mm, and yeah. I was wondering about amphibians as indicators because they're sensitive, right? Totally, yeah. Amphibians are very sensitive species. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that they have this very thin skin when they are in the water. Look at a frog. It's like you got that slimy, slippery skin. Newts do the same thing when they come back to the stream. They actually go through this incredible change in their body morphology. Mm. So like the morphology being like the characteristics of their body, they usually have on land skin that's like sandpaper. Mm -hmm. It's bumpy, That's it's rough, it's dry. Yeah. Yes. That skin morphology on land is to conserve water, mm -hmm. right? They don't want to desiccate. They don't want to dry out. And on land, they're underground. They're trying to stay cool and moist. When they go back into the water, that skin morphology changes, as do some other traits, because they go into like their breeding conditions. So the male skin 
gets more like a frog's skin. It gets slimy, it gets wet, slippery, it's covered with a special mucus. And that's important for them to breathe with. So there is some exchange of oxygen, mm -hmm. but there's also these chemical cues that are being emitted, the pheromones during mating, the mm -hmm. females are sensing these. And because their skin is so thin at that point, they are more sensitive to what's happening in the environment. And they're often considered canaries in the coal mine because of how sensitive they are to environmental change. Mm -hmm. This is well documented. There have been instances where certain frog species have changed sexes as a result of toxins in the environment. Specifically, Once they're adults? Yes, as wow. adults. As a result of chemicals in like Roundup, the glycophysate. Mm -hmm. That Roundup has consequences to the endocrinology mm -hmm. and adults were actually changing sexes, right? Mm -hmm. So you ask about like, are they sort of indicator species? Yeah, and I think they're very interesting indicator species because they not only are telling us about the water, but they're telling us about the land too. Mm -hmm. So we talked earlier about them needing upland habitat and places to go. Like if the habitat isn't perfect, they're not going to do well. The mm -hmm. populations are gonna decline. We've had instances where we've seen emergent diseases affecting populations and them really being indicators that something is not right at a site, at an mm -hmm. ecosystem because of the emergence of disease. And then do you see kind of like them being affected first and then the rest of the ecosystem starts to go downhill after? Yeah, and so we also have talked about the benthic macroinvertebrates. Like we were looking at like the dragonflies, we were looking at the toe biters, mm -hmm. we were talking about the stoneflies and caddisflies and mayflies. Those are all groups of invertebrates that live on the bottom of the stream and they're generally called benthic macroinvertebrates. And those invertebrates are indicators generally of the health of an ecosystem. And what we've seen in sites where amphibians are not doing well, invertebrates are not doing well. That makes sense. Yeah. There's probably similar stressors right. on all of them. Right. While we're talking about sad things, uh -huh. let's talk about what's threatening amphibians. Yeah, so what's threatening amphibians? And I would say the threats are pervasive to the entire ecosystem. And that's invasive species. So you've got here locally, what we're dealing with is crayfish. This is a species of crayfish called the red swamp crayfish native to the Southeastern United States. Okay. Think bayous. Right. Right. Gumbo. Yeah, I mean, it's like crawdad oils, food, right? Like right. the traditional food of the region. Yes. <laughs> they were introduced to the Santa Monica Mountains in the 50s or 60s. People just released bait that they were bringing to fish oh, at recreational sites in the mountains. They've since become pervasive throughout the largest watershed in the Santa Monica Mountains, which is the Malibu Creek watershed. And then they're found in Topanga Creek watershed, as well as one independent watershed called Trancus, which is kind of close to where we are right now at the western part of the range. So they are distributed throughout the Santa Monica Mountains. They're a huge threat because they're non-native predators. They just eat everything. The defenses that amphibians have evolved to protect themselves in this ecosystem don't work. We've talked about the tree frog species, Hylocadaverina, that their strategy is just dive into the pool mm -hmm. and leave the rock where you were perching to get some sun, just hanging out and go to the bottom of the pool. Well, that doesn't work because crayfish 
will kill you there. They actually attack newts, so the poison that the newts have doesn't protect them. Oh no. Doesn't protect the eggs. The eggs actually have the poison too. It doesn't protect them from crayfish. We also have introduced fish, smallmouth bass, bluegills, sunfish, carp. These eat the adults mm -hmm. of the frogs, they eat the eggs, they eat the tadpoles. We also have introduced fish that were put here by like vector control agencies thinking that it was a great idea. Like they're, the fish is actually called a mosquito fish, mm -hmm. thinking they would eat the mosquito larvae. They don't, they eat all of the frog eggs. Oh no. Yeah, and so that has caused problems. So there's the invasive species suite, fire, Wildfires, the way that wildfires affect amphibians is because when you have a burned landscape, given our topography here, all of the debris goes into the streams then and compromises the breeding habitat. So we've actually done people like Rosie Daggett, who's been a champion in the Santa Monica Mountains for amphibians and fish, native fish, steelhead trout specifically, have tried to dig out pools actually where we are today. Oh, nice. And it's just a futile effort because oh, really? within weeks they can be filled in with silt again. Mm -hmm. There's just that much being transported through the system. Wow. What's interesting is that it seems like some of the amphibians are not that affected by the actual fire itself. Mm. It's the downstream consequences mm. of the burned landscape. So we've got invasive species, fire, drought, and I'll put drought and climate change into the same mm -hmm. thing because drought coupled with increasing temperatures is a double dose of stress for amphibians. Mm -hmm. These amphibians have evolved to deal with drought. Mm -hmm. That's part of this ecosystem. Right. And fire, they, they can deal with fire too, actually. Mm -hmm. What they can't deal with is the combined threat of drought and increasing temperatures. Because what happens is it's drying habitat, but then it's so hot mm -hmm. too. They can't disperse. They can't find suitable habitat to estivate. And my colleagues and I have done research documenting how the combined threats of drought and record heat waves decimated newts specifically mm -hmm. in Southern California from 2014, 15, 16, when we had like the peak of our drought. Right. This year and last is really very similar to what we experienced in the mid-teens. And it's that really severe drought and then really warm temperatures. Mm -hmm. And what we were studying, I was going to all these sites across California and collecting data on adults. What did they weigh? Mm -hmm. And what we found is that that severe drought with the hot temperatures they were losing up to, on average, in Southern California, 20% of their body mass. Oh, wow. So we call this metric body condition, where you look at a ratio of mass divided by the length of the individuals. And they're not shrinking in length, right? right? right, right. They're just losing so much mass that that ratio just plummeted. Mm -hmm. And in specific sites where we had tagged individuals, we were not capturing any recaptures. It was significantly reduced numbers of individuals we were recapturing. And then the individuals that we were finding, there used to be a ton of variation in body size within sites. That dropped precipitously. Mm. And the amount of variation in body condition went down. 
and the the average mass went down. And so you could think about it like, you know, what would it mean for you if you lost 20% of your body weight, right? And you don't have the food to sustain you. We think a lot of it, it was driven by a lack of prey base. And we also hypothesize that if they were going to these places where they could estivate underground or whatever, maybe they just couldn't find that suitable habitat mm. and they never really fully estivated. Oh. And they were just searching for food and you know good habitat. Going through their stores that yeah. would have kept them through right. whatever season yep. they were trying to Exactly, do. yeah. Wow, that is a lot of threats. So there's <laughs> a lot, a lot of, threats. of threats. And then there's emergent diseases too. We've mm -hmm. talked about like chytrid, right? Mm -hmm. Newts actually carry chytrid, but don't appear to be affected by it. Although we have concerns that when they are very stressed mm -hmm. out because of drought and really warm temperatures and not great habitat and not great food bases, that they can become vulnerable to chytrid possibly. Mm -hmm. So that's been a concern. So you've got the climate change issues, you've got the fire issues, which are also related to climate change. Mm -hmm. You've got the invasive species issue. You've got the emergent disease issues. And then you've got the land loss. You know, that's why we're protecting habitat. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have colleagues that I've worked with that say, you know, do you think that climate change is a bigger issue or do you think that the loss of habitat is the you know the transition of these habitats and i think that that's a really loaded question mm. right i mean i don't want to hierarchically rank like which stressor is the worst they're all terrible mm -hmm. in different species they will have different impacts a degree of impact and so just thinking about land use change you know why do we work to preserve habitat you know, why is California looking at the 30 by 30 goals? Mm -hmm. We have to protect this habitat because that is a major threat to amphibians in general. And if you're losing it because of climate change, there's no freaking water. You got to make sure that it is there when we right. do get some water, right? right? We will get through drought. Like it might be a long time. I might be dead and gone. Mm -hmm. But if the habitat is still there to support them, it's possible they can rebound. Mm -hmm. You know, we got to give them that, that chance, right? Yeah, they don't um, even have a shot if they don't have the habitat. If they don't have the habitat, right, mm -hmm. exactly. And so this idea that we have to develop everything, you know, yes, development is, is great. Like, we need to ensure that there's places for people to live. We also have to balance that with our biodiversity. We have a unique space here in California, and we have to take care of that, and we have to be good stewards, and we have to do that with strong partnerships between communities. With so many challenges facing amphibians, people are thankfully stepping up and taking action to give them a better shot by doing things like removing invasive species like crayfish, reintroducing amphibians to areas where they've been absent, and protecting what habitat they have left. But how can you get involved if you want to help? That's the beauty of it today. There are so many groups working together and simply just reaching out to local docent organizations, contacting the researchers that you see featured in articles or newspaper, anything like that. Mm -hmm. Reach out to those people and we love volunteers. We appreciate any help we can get to fight this battle. And again, it's not just you know, here in the Santa Monica Mountains, there are lots of projects from restoring habitat, removal of invasive species, data collection to understand what species are at a specific place. We need to monitor biodiversity. So 
Does it help when people like upload pictures on iNaturalist and things yeah, like that? Yeah, iNaturalist is great. Mm -hmm. Like even if you do that, that's mm -hmm. fantastic. But I should say that yes, if people are interested in helping, they can contact me and I'll give you my contact information to post. Okay, perfect. So people have it. Great, I'll put that in the show notes when okay. I have it. So yeah, and I love hearing too. from people too. So tell me what you're interested in and what you're passionate about in conservation or restoration. So the best way to reach Gary is his email address, garyb at ucdavis.edu. I'll also put that in the show notes. He is as kind and warm over email as he was in person for this interview. So definitely reach out to him. I know he would love to hear from you. And my last question for you yeah. is just, what about doing this work and being in this environment and working with these animals still blows your mind or takes your breath away? I think what inspires me so much is seeing how they are so adaptable. Mm -hmm. Like they're making the best of it, right? Mm -hmm. Like this place is good habitat given the circumstances and they're hanging in there. They're, they're really trying to keep it going. Mm -hmm. And I'm always surprised at what that looks like. Fighting diseases, mm -hmm. dealing with invasive predators. Mm -hmm. Coming back to these streams sometimes and seeing that there's like no water and they're looking for it. Like they've come back to the uh -huh. exact same place uh -huh. and there's nothing there. Like, are we at the right place maybe? Mm -hmm. Like what happened? Mm -hmm. And thinking, what are they gonna do? You know, I watch them like just hang out and then they like eventually just go back on land and they're mm -hmm. like, oops, well, not happening this year, I guess. Wow. So I'm constantly amazed at how they are dealing, I mean, what an incredible species. I guess that's part of the benefit of being long lived is that they have more opportunities. So maybe they won't blink out because if they're living 20 or 30 years, maybe they'll get a few good years of breeding in there to sustain the populations. But there's always something incredible to see. What they're eating, mm -hmm. you know, like things that I've never seen before, like an eye growing back, right? Yeah, that's amazing. You know, mm -hmm. holy cow, or like a mating ball. We didn't even talk about this, but they aggregate when they breed. And because females aren't coming back to breed every year, and it's more like every three years, you only get maybe like a third of the females coming back to breed. And that creates a lot of competition because all the males are coming back. Uh -huh. So the way that that unfolds, competition for newts is not like banging antlers together, right? right. right? <laughs> It's actually, they form these mating balls. Oh my God. And there can be dozens of males writhing around one female. Whoa. Yeah, this is something just spectacular, right? Yeah. Like this form of competition. Yeah. This doesn't happen in other groups of organisms where you get mating balls right? of writhing <laughs> amphibians, wild. right? Yeah, so. There's just incredible things to see. The unken reflex. I've only seen it twice. Really? Yeah, it doesn't happen a lot, but mm -hmm. like to see an animal just kind of doing this pose, mm -hmm. regrowing in digits or dealing with predators, like mm -hmm. the escape and flee response from the larvae. There's just so many fascinating things to see, but again, it comes back to that stopping, looking, appreciating, making observations. If people have made great observations or something cool, like email me. I'd love mm -hmm. to hear about them. Cool. But that's what keeps me going. And I'm so eager to figure out what's happening and these responses to a rapidly changing climate. What's going to happen and how is it going to happen? 
for these for these nudes mm -hmm. and amphibians in general right yeah well thank you not only for your time but just for trying to take care of these animals and make sure that we know how to take care of them it's my pleasure and i feel like from a humanitarian perspective it's my job <laughs> well thank you thank you i feel a deep kinship with amphibians and california newts in particular this is probably in part because I was in awe of them as a child and loved finding them, but I also relate to their drive to find the way back home. I'm not as good at it as the newts, but I hope that when we get there, both of us have a flourishing home to go back to. A home that hums with the songs of all the creatures we share it with. And I think for us humans, finding our way back home might really be about making a home out of the places we already live. I want to give a big thank you to Gary Bucciarelli for taking the time on the weekend he was moving from LA to Northern California to meet up with me in the Santa Monica Mountains and teach me about amphibians. Something interesting from my week is that I got my first dose of the rabies vaccine just in the hope of doing an interview that calls for it someday. I don't have anything on the calendar. I just want to be prepared. There are so many topics that could call for this vaccine, and I want to talk to someone about all of them. Okay, that's all for this week. I appreciate you so much. Thank you for sticking around to the very end of the episode. I'll see you on the next episode of Golden State Naturalist. Bye. The song is called I Dunno by Grapes, and you can find the link to that as well as the Creative Commons license in the show notes.